1: Last week, as you recall, we left Professor Robinson working by a mysterious, ghostly swamp, out of which was soon to come the most terrifying challenge ever to confront our space family. Put it over there, dear boy. It doesn't take that long to post a sign, does it? Professor Robinson is a reflective man who likes to take his time. And the more time he takes, the less work for you, right, Smith? Major, I have told you before that I suffer from a very delicate back.
2: (laughs) I'll go see what's keeping him.
0: Welcome back, folks, for episode 19 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 19th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled Ghost in Space. Wild. (laughs) Well, it's a little
2: early for Halloween, Kurt,
0: but I'm always ready for a good ghost story. How about you?
2: Yeah, are you kidding me? It's never too early for Halloween, especially if it features a cool monster.
0: Mm. Well, you are the expert in Halloween. I'll have to give you that. So, A few production notes before we begin with the story. This was 59-year-old Peter Packer's seventh script for Lost in Space, but the sixth one that actually saw the screen. Not much is known about his story titled Sorry, Wrong Planet, other than it was ultimately dropped by the producers and never filmed. In this story, we're continuing to see the evolution of Dr. Smith's character with the introduction of his interest in the occult as well as the deepening relationship with Will Robinson. There's some plot holes in this one, but there are also some interesting elements and juicy dialogue for the cast. This was 42-year-old director Don Richardson's first of 26 episodes he helmed for Lost in Space, the most of any director. Richardson had previously done a variety of TV dramas, westerns, and comedies like Get Smart and the Munsters before Irwin Allen invited him to direct an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Cushman describes the difficult working relationship that the director had with Alan right from the start when he refused to meet with his prospective boss until after he was on salary. Clash of Ego's incidents like that would pop up repeatedly during their time working together, which makes you wonder how he managed to do so much Lost in Space. By the way, Richardson never did direct that episode of Voyage. Instead, they used him for this episode of Lost in Space.
2: Uh, Uncle Lane, can I interrupt a moment to elaborate on that story that you just mentioned? Because I read a quote of Richardson telling that tale in the Joel Eisner book, Lost in Space Forever. And it is so juicy and delicious. It would be cruel and inhumane to deny our listeners the details. (laughs) Now, this is Richardson talking to Eisner from page 76. And he says, and I quote, I recall I was in a movie theater and I used to, in those days, check with my agent once a day. I called in and he said that a man named Irwin Allen wanted me to do an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I asked him how much it paid and what the schedule was. My agent told me and I said, okay. Then he said, there's one catch. He wants to meet you first. I said, hmm. I don't meet anybody because I don't appear on the screen. So there's no point in them seeing what I look like. If he wants to see my work, he could watch the TV and it's there or he can even call the networks and get an old show. So my agent said to call him back in half an hour. I called back then and he said, Mister Allen said to go to hell. So, so I said it's mutual. Two (laughs) weeks later, I got called again. The agent said, "Mr. Allen says, would you do the show if he doesn't have to meet you?" I said, "Sure. After I'm on salary, I'll meet with anybody, even the devil himself." So, I guess since he's in hell, that's where he'd be, right? So, I went onto the studio on that appointed day, and they put me in an office and gave me a script. About twenty minutes later, the associate producer came in. His name was Jerry Briskin, and he was a very nervous man, and he. Kept pulling at his collar all the time, <laughs> and he said, uh, M- M- "Mr. Allen says that now that you're on salary, are, are you are you willing to meet him?" So I said, "Sure," and I went with him to the stage where Irwin was directing the pilot of the Time Tunnel. There were hundreds of people running around on the Titanic in their underwear with water effects. <laughs> I, I was led to the trailer on the stage where Irwin was, and. He was a man with about two feet of Brillo-like hair on top of his head, (laughs)
1: you know, kind of like Martin
2: (laughs) Fink or something. He was wearing a uh, strange colored shirt with a violet ribbon tied to a glass for looking through for the color shots. He said, sit down, sit down. So I I sat down and he briefed me on the cast. He told me that this one was a lunatic and that one was an egomaniac (laughs) and so on and so forth. (laughs) And then he said, good luck. And then I went on back to my office. Then after lunch, I came back and Briskin came in and said, Mr. Allen says that now that you're on salary, are you willing to meet him? And I said, yeah, but we did that just this morning. He said... I-, I told him, but he forgot. <laughs> so we went back to the Titanic, and the people were still there in their underwear running around. <laughs> running around. At this time, Erwin had a different color shirt on with a different color ribbon, looking through that same seeing glass for the color shots. He said, sit down, sit down. And like nothing had happened before, he told me all about the cast. I looked at my notes, and they all corresponded with what he had told me before. And he said, good luck. And that's how I began working with Erwin. <laughs> Isn't that priceless? And here's the added irony that Richardson didn't mention. (laughs) The Time Tunnel series began with the two main characters landing on the Titanic before it sinks. Well, a year later, the series ended with the same two characters landing on the same boat, repeating the same situation as before in an endless loop. So in this instance, life was actually imitating art. On the actual set where art was made, because the series would repeat itself just like Irwin was doing (laughs) on that first day of shooting. Oh, man. Or does that suggest that art was imitating life because Alan was actually repeating himself before the series did, you know? Maybe that's the cause that created the effect. Oh, man, these time paradoxes, they give me such a headache, but Mm. I just thought that was beautiful and had to be included. Oh, it is a beautiful story. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) And you said that was from uh, what book again? It was uh, Joel Eisner and Barry Megan's Lost in Space Forever.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good book. Okay, great. Well, this episode was filmed from the 13th through the 21st of January 1966, Seven Days. It aired on February 2nd, 1966, and got a summer repeat on June 8th, 1966. By the way, Lost in Space is still getting biffed, banged, and clobbered by Batman from 7.30 to 8 in the ratings, but it did manage to win back the top spot during its second half hour. Boy.
2: Whew. Yeah, I guess one week of watching Patty Duke was enough for most viewers. Yeesh.
0: All the regular characters are featured. The stunt actor Dawson Palmer is back in the role of the ghost or the bog creature. You might remember we last saw him as the two-headed skunk cabbage in the raft, and I'm putting that word saw in air quotes because uh, (laughs) obviously we didn't really see him. But fear not, there's an episode coming up where we'll get to see Palmer's mug on the screen, so we'll have to wait for that one. With that, let's get on with the story. The story. The teaser for Act 1 starts as usual with the narrator catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. The men and Will have left camp in the chariot looking to drill for more atomic ore. We see Professor Robinson on the edge of a swamp, pounding his homemade sign that warns, Danger! Keep away! Ionized gas! Signed, John Robinson.
2: Oh, wow. You know you're dealing with a real ego problem when someone is such a know-it-all that they actually sign their warning posters as if people are going to heed their warnings more after they recognize the person who autographed them. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, This sign must be true. It's posted by John Robinson. You know, the genius humanoid from Earth. I was going to ignore this, but since it's signed by John Robinson... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take this seriously. (laughs) Nobody on that planet knows who John Robinson is or even reads English for that matter. I mean, sheesh.
0: Yeah. Well, for some reason, he's not taking his own warning seriously because he's managing to tap into a pocket of that deadly ionized gas as he hammers on the pole and it quickly engulfs him in a large white cloud. (laughs) By the way, you may not have realized that we have some of that same deadly ionized gas here on Earth. It's called ozone. You know, the same stuff that people at Palm Springs luxury spas spend big bucks to enjoy for hours at a time. But I guess the ozone on Preplanis must be different. Yeah, the only thing Palm Spring ozone
2: makes invisible is wrinkles.
0: <laughs> I kind of wondered why, since this isn't a bog, they just didn't call it Dangerous swamp gas, I mean, but I guess that wouldn't have sounded very scientific, would it?
2: no, it wouldn't, but it would have been ironic because swamp gas is always being blamed for you know creating those large glowing objects that people confuse for flying saucers and other spacecraft, the same objects that seem to visit preplanus every single week mm-hmm that's
0: a good point, yeah. Mm. Anyway, that cloud of gas has caused John to lose consciousness and fall helplessly to the ground. A few yards away back at the drill site, as Don is setting up the gear, Dr. Smith is sitting and giving instructions to Will. Don stops to wonder why John's not back. It doesn't take that long to post a sign in the bog.
2: Professor Robinson is a reflective man who likes to take his time.
0: (laughs) Hmm. Obviously, Smith's not worried about John. And as Don cracks, the more time John takes, the less work for you, right, Smith? Boy... (laughs) He gets all the best barbs to throw, doesn't he?
2: Really, Major, we will never be friends.
0: Mm. <laughs> will volunteers to go see what's keeping his dad. When he arrives in the scene, he's shocked to see Professor Robinson passed out, smothered in that deadly gas and he kind of looks like he was all ready for the Undertaker because he's lying completely flat on his back with his arms perfectly placed by his sides. All that was missing was the quarters on his eyelids.
2: Uh-huh.
0: It does, however, appear to be very noxious gas because Will has to cover his face with his arm as he shouts for Don to come help. It only takes a second for the Major to arrive on the scene and luckily he has a handkerchief in his pocket to fight off those fumes. He grabs John and manages to drag him a few feet away from the source of that gas leak but honestly it looked to me like they should have moved farther away because they're all still feeling the effects of it as Don tries desperately to revive the still blacked out professor after much coughing slaps on the cheek and hands from Don John eventually does come around and he says he'll be all right but there was some real suspense for a minute there because we really had no visual indication that he was still
2: alive. Not to interrupt again about the book, but according to Eisner, the original script had the Major give the Professor mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and revive John that way. Mm. But the CBS censors wouldn't allow that to be shown, which is kind of a shame because that would have short-circuited Star Trek's much-ballyhooed claim about telephizing the first interracial kiss between Lieutenant Uhura and Captain Kirk— mm. Because Irwin could have bragged that Lost in Space had the first lip-locking between two men. (laughs) (laughs) Then they would have really been ahead of their time, huh?
0: They sure would have. As he's helped up on his feet, John voices what we're all thinking. I guess I forgot to read that sign. Then the three head back to the drill site. Some time passes as John and Don are getting the rig ready to drill. Will is standing close by as their step-and-fetched assistant. The only one not helping is a very impatient Dr. Smith who's sitting on a rock a few feet away... He's not only no help, he's probably hindering their progress with his bad attitude. John comes up with a way to get Smith out of the way and squeeze just a little work out of him. He hands the doctor a bundle of charges and asks him to walk over to Drill Site 5 and do a little blasting. If there's nothing up there, it'll save them time. By the way, that bundle of charges was different from the Molecule models we saw in Mr. Nobody. These look more like conventional dynamite sticks wrapped together in a bundle, although they appeared to be painted silver and came complete with a convenient firing pin
2: yeah lost in space always seems to think that if you want something to look futuristic all you have to do is paint it silver or gold (laughs) (laughs) exactly
0: it's a very simple operation, John tells Smith. All he has to do is pull the pen, drop it in the hole, and get away before the charges go off. It's a task even he shouldn't be able to foul up. Hmm. Wanna bet? Yeah. He thinks it's another futile effort, but John insists. Will volunteers to accompany Smith on the way to the site. Smith balks, but John says to take him since he knows the way.
2: Very well. Lead on. Hmm. After setting
0: off, Will informs Smith that he knows a shortcut through the bog, which sounds dangerous to Smith, what with all that ionized gas just waiting to strike. Will says, okay, we can go the hard way. I can handle the climb if you can. Suddenly, Smith has a better idea. He turns on the syrupy concerned act, telling Will that he forgot about the spare drill heads in the chariot, and he insists that Will go back and tell the others, while he finishes his task alone. He'd go back himself, but the men are already very annoyed with him, to which Will adds that he hasn't been very encouraging.
2: Very true, but I've always been a man to speak my mind.
0: Mm. Will agrees and heads back to the drill site. When the boy's gone, Dr. Smith, holding those charges like they might explode at any moment, gets a devious look of determination on his face. He steps a few more yards down the path, passing John's warning sign, then approaching the edge of the swamp. Smith looks around to make sure the coast is clear. He pulls the pin on those charges and tosses them into the bog, which in this case appears to be a familiar-looking quicksand trap that swallows them up in a flash. Smith turns to run away, but realizing he's still holding the pen, he panics, turns around, and comically tosses the pen in after the charges. He then hightails it out of the area. Now, Cushman says that little bit of silly action with the pen was not written in the script. It was an ad-lib by Harris, who was very comfortable playing Smith for laughs by now, and director Richardson must have thought it was funny too, because he left it in. Yeah, plus it saved
2: them a new take, huh? Exactly.
0: Exactly. A few seconds later, as Smith is on his way back to the others, we hear the sound of the explosion. And it violently rocks the ground on the path, causing Smith to duck for cover. Back at the drill site, Don comments that the blast sounded a little offbeat to him. They hope Smith didn't foul it up. Oh boy, hope springs eternal. They'll check results tomorrow. For now, it's time to get packed up and head back to camp. Before we go to opening credits, we see next a cloudy night sky. The wind is ominously whining. We cut back to the eerie, moonlit, foggy bog where suddenly, Several large trees start crashing to the ground all by themselves. Then we hear the sounds of heavy footsteps thumping through the night. And that's when the camera starts tracking along the sandy ground. Then we're shown these large, three-toed footprints making deep impressions in the soil. But there's no sign of what's making those prints. Whatever this invisible creature is, it's large and has very dangerous looking feet. Might even need a pedicure. Is this the ghost we've been promised, Kurt?
2: Yes, they've delivered the ghost goods, as promised. And the effect they used to create the footprints in the sand is superior as well. They don't use the stop-action version that would have seemed too sudden, where in one moment there's no footprint, and then the next second, there it suddenly is. Nor do they show the dust rising up from within the foot, like they did for the Invisible Monster in Forbidden Planet. Do you remember that effect? It kind of gave away the fact that the wire was releasing the support that was holding the sand up. Yeah. No, this was a top-notch effect, and it, seemed to sink as if the creature was stepping down on it and I don't even know how they did it but kudos it was flawless.
0: Yeah I really liked it. When we return from the opening titles, we're back at the nighttime Jupiter-2 campsite. Penny is being measured by Marine for some new space fatigues. She seems very excited at the prospect of a wardrobe change. I guess Home ed classes in 1998 are more like computer science classes because we get to see another sweet piece of Lost in Space technology, the Electronic Garment Synthesizer. By the way, if you do a freeze frame on the DVD and look closely on the table next to the device, you can see some of costume designer Paul Zestepnevich's original production sketches being used as props for this scene. I only recognize those because in Angela Cartwright and Bill Mooney's 2016 book, Lost in Space, We Plan It That Way, they reprinted some of those original artworks.
2: We Plan It That Way. Yeah, We Plan It That Way. (laughs) That's
0: a good title, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a fun book. It's kind of like a little retrospective of their growing up and doing the series together, but it's really full of some interesting photos and illustrations as well. Anyway, Judy is modeling her new togs and asks Mom how she looks. Gone is Judy's dark skirt and sweater combo. Marine says her stylish, form-fitting tunic and tights are a perfect fit, which she knows, but how does she look? And Mom says stunning, which seems to please her. Penny's patiently waiting for her new outfit to pop out of the machine and hopes hers will be as nice as Judy's. Then, in walks Dr. Smith, carrying a piece of board and asking if anyone has any scarlet paint. Hmm. He needs it for his Ouija board. That's when he notices Judy's new outfit. Marine explains she felt they were all due for a change, and she points to his new outfit lying on the table, which he picks up with a scowl. He tells Mrs. Robinson that apparently she has no idea how to cut a man's clothes. She's made no allowance for the muscular development of his arms or the breadth of his shoulders. He tells her to think of the Greek athlete when tailoring for him. And I think Packer was really winking at us with those lines because even the girls get a laugh out loud after that little bit.
2: Oh, yeah. When I think of the ancient Greeks, I think of a different stereotype than athleticism, (laughs) at least as far as Dr. Smith is concerned. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear me.
0: Most of the cast liked these new costumes, and they would retain versions of these new outfits through the second season. One exception was Jonathan Harris. His original uniform had featured dark, villainous colors, like a navy velour sweater and uh, red piping around a light blue turtleneck collar and black trousers. His new outfit was a lighter-colored tan sweater with brown piping around an orange-colored zip-up collar. Harris liked it about as much as Doctor Smith, and it would only last a few episodes before he demanded a return to a darker uniform combo. Not only did he think it was inappropriate for the heavy to be wearing light colors, he didn't think it flattered his middle-aged physique. As with many other issues, Harris got his way.
2: Uh, it sounds like he was quite a dandy with the clothing, but what do I know? All this time, I thought those muscle bulges were really padding from his back brace and stomach girdle. <laughs> Well, Smith is still on the hunt for some scarlet
0: paint, explaining to Penny that his Ouija board is the method he uses to communicate with the timeless and universal spirits of the departed. One in particular spirit, his great-uncle Thaddeus. John and Don arrive outside to hear Smith continue telling Penny how remiss he's been. He hasn't attempted to speak with Uncle Thaddeus in months. Don pipes in to ask if he really thinks he can reach his uncle with that board. And this is the first of several skeptical encounters between Don and Smith that will occur throughout this story. Will's also not a believer in those old superstitions, and he warns his sister not to be fooled by such tales. But Penny jumps to Smith's defense, saying, Dr.
2: Smith's talked to his uncle plenty of times. Actually, I'm with Don on this one. Talking with your dead uncle on Earth is one thing, but now you're at least 10 light years away from Earth, at least according to Will. So some serious long-distance rates would apply, or at very least some time delay between communications. I mean, seriously, if it takes 10 years for light to travel from Earth, how can a seance be any faster?
0: Mmm, good point. <laughs> mm. hadn't thought about that. Well, John and Don are taking this in with bemused expressions on their faces, as Smith retorts,
2: You're entitled to your opinion, young man, but if your sister prefers to adhere to mine, I shall defend to the death her right to do so.
0: Mm. Don challenges Smith to prove it and offers up some red lead paint in the tool room for his Ouija board.
2: Red lead indeed. A bit utilitarian, but I suppose it will have to do.
0: Mm. In a huff, Smith heads off to get the paint and finish his board This is getting very interesting indeed Back at the dinner table, as everyone is finishing up the evening meal Dr. Smith is putting the finishing touches on his Ouija board Now Lisa thought it was interesting with all the other items they managed to pack on the spaceship No one thought of bringing a Ouija board hmm.
2: Yeah, they did think about bringing the wax candles Because you can never have enough of an open flame in an oxygen-rich <laughs> spaceship, right? Exactly Just ask the Apollo crew
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, Kurt, I know you're fond of all things spooky. Did you ever play with a Ouija board as a child yourself?
2: I thought they were really cool, but I never seemed to find anybody else who wanted to play with them. You know, we didn't own one, but, you know, whenever you go over to somebody else's house and they had them, it's like, let's play with the Ouija board. Yeah. They never really quite delivered the goods, though. It always seemed like, you know, somebody else was pushing the darn thing. You could always tell because it would they would misspell the answers. Uh, <laughs> skeptic, skeptic. <laughs> I just wanted more bang for my buck. You know, I Wanted the ghost to materialize and yeah. the bells to ring and all that other stuff. Yeah. Well, just wait. We may get some of that
0: here. Smith announces with a flourish that he's done with his board. Maureen says it looks very mysterious to her.
2: The riddle of the universe is wrapped in mystery, dear lady. <laughs>
0: Don's still not buying Smith's mumbo-jumbo, but Smith isn't deterred. He must choose a medium from among the group, and it must be an individual with the same sensitive qualities as Aunt Matilda. Don volunteers, but Smith quickly rejects him. Instead, he chooses the one person who's already shown a willingness to keep an open mind about it. Penny. He asks the parents for permission. Maureen wants to make sure it won't be too scary for her. Penny says that it's really no different than a scientific experiment. And John admits that there are psychic phenomena that haven't yet been explained. So he tells Smith to go ahead.
2: You're too kind.
0: (laughs) Penny joins Smith a few feet away to start their experiment. They sit face to face with the Ouija board resting on their knees. Dr. Smith places a glass on the board and instructs her to place her fingertips on the glass with him. Then he tells her to concentrate deeply, which causes Will to start giggling. It's just so silly, he says. Smith is not amused by these doubting Thomases and Philistines. He decides they should move farther away so as not to be disturbed by these adverse influences. Don tells Smith to give his regards to Aunt Matilda. (laughs) Then Maureen tells the others about finding a Ouija board as a child, but that no one knew what to do with it, and she adds it's quite obsolete in the world of computers. Just like Dr. Smith cracks Don, which causes everybody at the table to chuckle. On the other side of the rocks, and away from all the skeptics and doubters, Smith and Penny are ready to communicate with the spirits. The mood now has changed completely from the light-hearted scene at the dinner table. Now they're alone in the dark, and Dr. Smith tells Penny to stare at the glass and concentrate. Then Smith starts his incantations, asking Uncle Thaddeus to give them a sign that he is near. At that the wind begins to whine and a plant begins to shake in the breeze Smith asks Penny if she's feeling any presence She says she's feeling shivery Good,
2: that's how it begins
0: Mm. And just then it does begin, that glass starts to move, apparently by itself With that wind whining and the eerie music in the background This part had a very Haunted Mansion vibe to me
2: Oh yeah, very true. I'm loving it. All we needed was that uh, mansion organ, you know, the mm-hmm. Disney mansion organ yes. playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I am your host, your ghost host. <laughs> Paul Freeze. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. The glass is going wild around that board now, when suddenly that plant that was shaking earlier flies straight up into the air and off into the night, accompanied by this strange laughing sound effect. But Smith isn't surprised or frightened by this. He's delighted by it, quietly telling Penny,
2: We are not alone. They are here with us. Oh, eternal powers of the spirit world, grasp this humble artifact and materialize your presence so that we may recognize you.
0: Mm. And that's when things take a turn for the frightening. The glass they're touching with their fingertips suddenly shatters. And that was a really
2: cool practical effect. I kept trying to think, how did they do that? It really just snapped. They just had a sniper shoot it, you know, with a, a <laughs> rifle. <laughs> and they, of course, they used Don because he doesn't have any problem with shooting at the cast. Remember? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well,
0: they're both startled by this, but Smith tries to keep Penny calm. As he dumps the glass shards off the board, the music turns very chilling. And this is more or that Bernard Herrmann music from The Day the Earth Stood Still. Then, the Ouija board starts to levitate. It dangles there a few feet above them as they stare frozen in disbelief, when it suddenly flies off and crashes into a nearby boulder, breaking up into several pieces.
2: Yeah, we've we've suddenly changed gears from a comic scene from Bewitched to something more akin to the Ambeville horror.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, this is just too much for Penny to handle now. She jumps up and runs back to Mom, with Smith following closely behind. Penny falls into Maureen's arms and is very upset by the experience she's just what witnessed.
1: What's the matter? What happened? <sighs> the, the scariest thing. First, the glass, it broke into pieces. And then the Ouija board, it, it flew up in the air all by itself and what? and zoomed down on a rock and broke up. I'm breaking up too, but in a different way. All right, Smith. Now tell us what really happened. Surely you don't doubt the word of your own child no but it's possible that all she saw was an illusion created by you skeptics skeptics there cut by a piece of that flying glass does that convince you i was afraid uncle thaddeus would not like it here are you sure uncle thaddeus did that indeed yes he was a very powerful man in life always throwing things about when something didn't please him oh nice as pie on the surface but very pugnacious underneath an iron hand in a velvet glove tonight he was all iron hand. I wish I knew how to placate him. Ah, oh, come on now, Smith. Stop this hanky-panky, huh? Hanky-panky indeed. If what you say really happened, there's a scientific explanation for it. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. Now I'm going to bed. Good night. And I suppose the rest of you agree with him? Come on, children. It's time for bed. Good night. Smith. Smith. There may be a scientific explanation for this, and there may not be. But right now, we've got too many problems to cope without worrying about your Uncle Thaddeus. Ugh, the pain. The pain. Mm.
0: Packer really treated Harris with some great dialogue in this script. It's one of my favorite parts about this whole story.
2: Yes, indeed. Beautiful use of the language, Zachary. As usual.
0: As usual. I wanted to mention the scene was a little frightening at the end, and there were several notes from the CBS censors demanding there should be no doubt that the flying objects in that scene were not caused by supernatural forces, but by the invisible creature from the bog. So in other words, bog monsters were okay, but real ghosts were forbidden.
2: Yeah, that's kinda of strange because, you know, there was that wild laughter in the in the background and there's really no explanation for that other than spirits. We we never get that from the bog monster. So apparently they just ignored that memo. Totally.
0: Yeah. There's so many of those things that don't make any sense. Like, why did the glass break? I mean, wouldn't they have noticed even if the bog monster is invisible, wouldn't they have been able to
2: <laughs> Yeah, see the footprints? Oh, yeah. Right.
0: And I was t- left thinking at that point that it was something different from what we had seen with the footprints. It was, all, it was all a little confusing.
2: Yeah, well, I think the moral to this lesson is if they're not exactly specific, it's a little bit like dealing with your teenage sons. You know, yeah. if you don't give them specific rules, you must do this, they're not going to do it. <laughs> right. Right right. Later that night, the family is awakened
0: inside the buttoned up Jupiter 2 by the robot, warning them of danger from a violent alien presence. Everyone rushes to the upper deck, dressed in their PJs and sleeping clothes to see what the trouble is, and as our castaways stare out the windows at an empty campsite, the wind outside is howling so loud they can hear it inside the ship. The robot announces that the object does not compute. A frightened Dr. Smith appears wearing his Ebenezer Scrooge nightshirt and cap, which is always a laugh, but no one else is laughing because the robot says that whatever that thing is outside it has a genetic code that's indecipherable and it's moving towards them at the speed of light
2: whoa 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 i'm no physics expert but at 670 million miles an hour i'm pretty sure you couldn't measure the speed of light in just a few blocks of distance i mean (laughs) it it would be instantaneous and it would arrive even before you could say it's approaching right
0: yeah, that's true. And this is even more confusing because I didn't see those footprints moving at the speed of light either. So yeah. I, yeah. Suddenly things go really crazy. The hydroponic garden tables start to flip over and crash. Then more objects begin flying around. It's turned into bedlam out there. Oh, yeah. Smith accuses the rest of the family of offending the spirits. Then he demands a description from the robot. He computes that whatever it is is invisible, indestructible, and irresistible.
2: You can do better than that, you ninny.
0: Negative. Computers are inadequate for further information. Smith's now fully convinced the violence they're all witnessing is his Uncle Thaddeus and one of his infrequent benders, thanks to the Major.
2: It's all Don's fault, the Major.
0: The Major. With the act coming to an end, Smith decides he must go out and try to calm his uncle's angry spirit, which causes Maureen to wonder that it's too dangerous.
2: In the teeth of the hurricane, in the eye of the gale, the turbulence of the spirit, there is only one way, face to face. (laughs) <laughs> He's certainly got the lines down, doesn't
0: he? <laughs> He's great. such a drama queen. Uh, uh, dressed for success, Dr. Smith tentatively exits the ship. Maureen thinks they should stop him, but Don says, don't worry about him. He'll run for his life if anything comes within a mile of him.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was a funny insult, but Smith's going out there was actually pretty brave, you know. Certainly braver than the Major hiding inside the ship with the women and the children, you know. <laughs> I'm just saying.
0: Yeah, it was. It was. Things seem to have calmed down for the moment as he walks out into the dead of night, but with the rest of the family watching, the creepy music tells us that the danger hasn't passed. He starts to speak to his uncle, but gets no response. Even when he apologizes for the other castaways' lack of respect. That's when, from out of nowhere, a large boulder
2: comes flying from left field, heading straight for the good doctor's head. Forget about the Rotten Tomatoes. Whoever, whatever this thing is, it's throwing giant boulders. And he's tossing as if they were some sort of lightweight styrofoam prop. Mmm, imagine that. Well, Smith
0: sees it at the last second and tries to duck out of the rock's path, but we'll have to wait until we return from the commercial to find out if Dr. Smith has been smashed like his Ouija board. And we'll
2: return after these important messages from our spirit guides.
1: Lost in Space will continue after station identification.
0: This is CBS. return from the break to start act two dr. Smith is flat on the ground but still breathing the others run out of the ship to help him Smith asks them if he's still there meaning uncle Thaddeus I suppose Don says there never was anyone there but admits that whatever force through that boulder had to be a powerful one Smith's still convinced he had a run-in with his powerful uncle the family takes a look at the terrible damage caused by the force that came ripping through the campsite John comments that whatever caused all that destruction it prefers to work in darkness But Don asks how John knows that. The professor points to the sky. The dawn is breaking and the invisible force is gone.
2: Goodbye, Uncle Thaddeus.
0: It couldn't have been a twister or other weather phenomena, but what could have done it?
2: I have tried my best to explain it to you, but I might as well talk to a wall.
0: And that's when Don notices some of those large, three-toed, freakish footprints in the soil. He sarcastically asks Smith if his uncle has feet like that.
1: Beware, Major. He may be invisible at the moment, but he can hear you only too clearly. You're asking for trouble. Sure, sure. John, what do you make of it? Uh, What was it the robot said? Uh, Genetic code, indecipherable? He also said invisible, indestructible, and irresistible. And yet with enough energy to cause all that damage. What kind of energy? The vital energy of the spirit world, madam. With three-toed footprints? The footprints have nothing to do with it.
2: Well, then what could have made them?
1: Some nocturnal denizen of this miserable planet seeking food. Certainly no visitor from the spirit world. Come on, Smith, change the record. Let's get some breakfast. I think we should get up to the Drill Site 5 and see what we've got. Well, until all this is cleaned up, we're going to have to eat all our meals inside. Yeah. Uh, Major West. What is it, Smith? I hope you won't be too disappointed if you don't find anything up at uh, Drill Site 5. And what is that supposed to mean? You said yourself the explosion sounded like a damp squib. And with your superior knowledge of pyrotechnics, you're probably right. You put the blasting pack in the hole marked with the arrow. Oh, indeed I did. Uh-huh. And you put the metal capping back on the hole before you left. Naturally, that's SOP for all blasting operations. There is no arrow and no metal capping. Now what did you do with the explosives? I want the truth. You're hurting me. All right then, Smith. What did you do with it? I threw it in the bog. Oh, you're well, there Well, it was too much of a climb for a man of my years. You should never have sent me. Well, at least we know where that energy came from. You combine that explosive with whatever elements are in that bog, and it evidently unleashes a force we have no power to control. We better get up to that drill site, Don.
0: That's a good Lost in Space science talk there. But I think I like the Uncle Thaddeus explanation better.
2: Yeah, apparently John is a big tent scientist. He believes in everything, including spontaneous generation, perpetual motion, and spiritual manifestations, so long as there's a Big Bang, to give it all credit. Mm.
1: (laughs) I want to tell you one thing, Smith. I promise you. That bog may be off limits to everyone else, but from now on, you're going to be swimming in it every night looking for your three-toed uncle.
0: (laughs) Oh man, he got the best lines.
2: But I can't swim.
0: (laughs) Next, we're with John and Don trudging along with their flashlights and laser rifles as they work their way through the mists of that deadly swamp. Don's still complaining about Dr. Smith as the two men survey the area. That's when John notices something on the ground. It's more of those large three-toed footprints. It's a mystery because the force is invisible, yet has enough molecular weight to leave footprints. So is it matter, or is it a force, or some cosmic
2: combination of both? And why does it only roam about at night, just like Uncle Thaddeus? Maybe John is right in its invisibility based on scientific principles like a Romulan space cruiser with a cloaking device that bends the light around a very real and heavy object. Of course, that wouldn't explain why it only works at nighttime, though.
0: Yeah, I guess we'll have to find out, hmm. Well, in this scene, we get our first good look at John and Don's new uniforms as well. Instead of their previous turtleneck tops, they both now have these uh, velour v-neck sweaters with zippered collars. Now, since this is black and white, we don't really see the colors, but they're the same uniforms they use in season two. And so John has a dark green sweater and pants with yellow collar and cuffs, and Don has this rust brown sweater and pants with a yellow collar and cuffs. Don's sweater also has these two diagonal rank stripes across the chest. He is a major. (laughs) Drill.
2: Yeah, but you forgot to tell us the color of the socks. Oh! (laughs) Sorry. Okay, whatever. Yeah,
0: I know. Anyway, they have just enough time to set the explosives at Drill Site 5 and be back at the bog before nightfall. Meanwhile, back at the Jupiter two, Dr. Smith appears from below deck in his new uniform, holding a lit candle. The rest of the family are also dressed in their new uniforms as well. Judy's wearing a yellow tunic with orange accents and yellow tights. Maureen is wearing her dark green top with large V-neck collar and green tights, which is a nice match with John's new uniform. And Will is wearing a dark orange and yellow combo with a zippered collar that he will continue to use throughout Season 2. While Penny has a light yellow colored tunic and orange tights styled similar to Judy's, Are you enjoying this fashion report, by (laughs)
2: the way? Yeah, I'm waiting for the monster. Get to the monster.
0: (laughs) Penny's costume would stay the same for season two, but the colors would be reversed, making it mostly orange with yellow accents. And I'm only going over all these colors to make this point. I think the reason they were going with all these really bright, wild colors was not just it was the 60s. I think Erwin was already thinking that if they got picked up for a second season, they'd be switching to color instead of black and white. So they really wanted to make a splash. And remember, Batman was all about the color, too. So.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I think you also mentioned earlier that those aluminum spacesuits were killing the cast, and they were tight, didn't stretch, were hot and sticky. And as Smith would say, we're very icky. Yes, and I think they updated the material for those as well in the
0: season, two. So Ah, wild. The others ask doctor Smith what his candle is for and he announces that while the men are absent standing watch in the bog he's decided to perform an act that may save them from more of uncle Thaddeus's displeasure a seance to placate the spirits.
2: Now see! That that's why they brought the candles mm. to perform exorcisms. You know, that that's why I would never make a good astronaut. I never foresaw the need for that, you know. Plus I couldn't stand wearing a sealed helmet and not being able to wipe that tickling drop of sweat from the bridge of my nose. That just drive me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: Well, they're confused, but Smith convinces them to gather around outside a glass table. A table I don't remember seeing before, but I do recognize the stand that glass top is sitting on. It's the old NGS scanner that John had to risk life and limb to fix all the way back at the beginning of the season in the reluctant stowaway. How can we forget?
2: Yeah, good thing he saved it. Otherwise, now they'd be screwed. (laughs) No seance table. Yep.
0: Smith is delighted to be in charge of these proceedings, but the family remains skeptical. And Maureen balks at the very idea of a seance in outer space. Will says that what they saw was just an effect of the explosives and the swamp gas. Hmm. Swamp gas. We talked about that. And as you said, that's what they used to blame UFO sightings on, right, Kurt? But um, I'm with Smith and Mulder on this one. I want to believe...
2: Oh, Mulder, there's a completely scientific explanation for your car floating up into the belly of that round hovering object, (laughs) then blanking out and reawakening with a painful rectal itch. Ugh, where's my preparation (laughs) H?
0: (laughs) Smith tells Will he's getting to be as bad as Major West with his know-nothing-know-how attitude, adding that it's a common failing of all technologists. Then to Marine, he tries to quote
2: Shakespeare. There are more things in heaven and earth... Etc. Etc. <laughs> I was surprised Smith didn't know that one. He was—he's he, correctly quoted Shakespeare before, and this one's quite famous. It's from Hamlet, where he says, "There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy." You remember that? I do remember. That's one
0: of the few Shakespeare lines that I can quote. So it seemed odd that he couldn't. You're right. Anyway, it's time to get on with it. After all, it's almost midnight—the bewitching hour. So she agrees and lets the children join him around the table with the candle in the center and the robot in the background with a guitar hung around his neck. Then we cut back in the fog shrouded bog. John and Don are patrolling the area looking for signs of trouble. With the wind faintly howling, we then hear the thud of those heavy footsteps. Uh Uh-oh. Both men are startled and turn their heads in the direction of the sounds. We cut to another tracking shot of those deep, three-toed footprints in the soil. And then, trees start to be flipped and thrown out of the way by the invisible, indestructible, irresistible force that's bearing down on the men. John readies his laser rifle, but where is he going to aim it? I mean, I don't know, but he fires anyway at the nearest tree left standing. The laser shot does a beautiful job of blasting that tree to smithereens, but it doesn't stop Uncle Thaddeus.
2: I was hoping he would hit the creature and we would see the cool outline of its features, like what they did in the Forbidden Planet movie, you know, when right. the monster crosses the electric force field and we see the outline and the electric bolts but that was probably you know too expensive of an animation for uncle Irwin. yeah flash
0: powder is always cheaper kurt <laughs> yeah <laughs> with the act drawing to a close john decides discretion is the better part of valor and orders a tactical retreat to the ship but before they can get far that force has pinned them down We hear the sounds of fists hitting as the angry spirit knocks them both something silly and then leaves them sore but still breathing. That whole scene kind of reminded me of a bat fight, but without the flashing biffs or bangs.
2: Yeah, I liked it, but it just didn't feel right about a monster hitting them with his fist, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've I've never been to monster school, but if I had been, I'd be surprised if they taught boxing lessons. You know, I'd expect they'd focus more on using your teeth and claws. Right these are alien monsters so who knows for sure
0: yeah well the men recover their senses and then race back to camp meanwhile we see the footsteps of that beast continuing to March and right before we go to commercial the camera lingers on John's warning sign that started this whole story the last image we see is the sign being suddenly plucked out of the ground by invisible hands and then disintegrating into small pieces before it's finally tossed aside apparently this ghost is not a fan of yard signs
2: yeah, well, if it's during a political campaign, I can understand. But it was a cool effect, and I don't know how they did that. Did you? I mean, pulling up the sign with the fish line, that's easy enough. But how do you get it to get crushed in midair like that unless you shoot it with a shotgun or something?
0: It was a real ghost, Kurt, don't you know? It <laughs> makes sense.
2: Yep.
1: Lost in Space. Brought to you by... When you haven't the energy to do your job, it may be iron deficiency anemia, or as we call it, tired blood. When you're too worn out to do your housework, it may be tired blood. Check with your doctor, and if tired blood is your problem, take Geritol, the high-potency tonic to help you feel stronger fast. In just one day, Geritol iron is in your bloodstream, carrying strength and energy to every part of your body. Just two tablespoons of Geritol or two tablets contain twice the iron in a pound of calf's liver. So if you feel tired and run down because of tired blood, take Geritol every day. You will feel stronger fast in seven days or money back.
0: When we return from the commercial to start Act 3. We're back at the séance outside the Jupiter. Smith and the children are holding hands with Marine observing behind. Right on cue, the robot starts to play the electric guitar. Actually, He's holding an acoustic guitar, but it sounds like an electric guitar. And then they all begin singing this little Scottish ditty, I suppose, to put them in the mood, or perhaps Uncle Thaddeus was from the Highlands. I wasn't quite sure what that was all about, were you?
2: Well, they've had other, you know, supposedly during seances, if you play music that was meaningful to the individual that you're trying to get to cross over, it helps bring them to you. Oh, okay. Okay. Alright, well that
0: makes sense. I, I didn't know that part, so well it was cute and it also seemed like they'd practiced that song because everybody seemed to know the lyrics right off the bat.
2: Oh, you know, of all the unexplained phenomena in this episode, you're wondering how they knew the lyrics of the same song. <laughs> right? Really, I thought I was being nitpicky, but wow. All
0: right, busted.
2: If a body meets somebody coming through
1: the ride. If a body kiss a body, need a body cry. Every lassie he has her laddie, none they say have I. Yet all the lads, they smile on me when, when
2: coming through, through the rise.
1: Splendid, Penny. It is vital that your left hand be in contact with Will's right. It would be terrible if we broke the eternal circle, you know. Now then. Let everyone close his eyes And send out thoughts to the timeless And universal spirits of those that came before us
0: Smith begins to call to the friendly spirits But Maureen thinks it's all a little silly
1: Oh really, Dr. Smith Don't you think this is a little ridiculous? Shh, madam You will ruin everything with your unfriendly vibrations We greet you with song, O spirit With infinite faith in your goodness Shh, no giggling (laughs)
0: Smith shushes her, and then he continues. The children giggle after every one of his pleas to the spirits, but he continues to hush them and presses on with his effort. He's waiting with bated breath for a sign that the spirits are with them. Oh, spirit,
1: give us a sign that you have overlooked our naughty fellow travelers in space who doubt your presence. (laughs) And let them know that you are willing to let bygones be bygones. If they will amend their ways...
2: (laughs)
0: But suddenly, John and Don come running into the camp, ordering everyone inside the ship. Smith is flummoxed and upset that they've interrupted his service but changes his tune when that force delivers a blow to his chin. The other men are also being pummeled by that force as the robot starts issuing warnings of unidentified objects in front, behind, and all around them. John hustles everyone inside the safety of the ship. Smith keeps calling to his uncle without any response. Confused but not willing to stay and find out more Smith also retreats inside the ship Just before the hatch closes shouting hey, Wait for me That really reminded me of that scene in uh, Empire Strikes Back When uh, C-3PO is trying
2: to run to get on the Millennium Falcon Before it blasts out And he's like,
0: wait for me, wait for me
2: <laughs> You know, he kind of has a uh, Jonathan Harris type accent When you stop to think about it You know, that little uh, effete British yeah, type thing Yeah, it is very, very
0: similar in that regard, yeah Inside the ship, John orders Don to throw on the force field, and he tells Judy to take the youngsters below deck. Suddenly, there's a flash of electrical charges from outside the ship. The robot issues another warning as all the computers and instruments on board the ship go dark, including the robot. Whatever this force is, it feeds on power, and it's drained everything, including the force field, leaving our castaways helpless.
2: That force field is becoming about as reliable as the cable company repairman, (laughs) you know, not.
0: (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Just at that moment, calm returns to the ship. What happened? John says, There's the reason. Dawn is breaking over the hilltops. Now we know for certain whatever ghost, creature, or force is threatening our castaways, it can only do its work under the cover of darkness.
2: Well, that kind of makes sense. You know, when I want to be invisible, I wait till it's really dark. Unfortunately, everything's invisible at that point, but, you know, hey. <laughs>
0: John tells Don to get the backup power system working, which he does. He adds that if the creature feeds on energy, perhaps they can use that as bait to trap it and destroy it. ¶¶ next day, Smith tells the men that they're completely mad to think they can trap a spirit like Uncle Thaddeus. And the men are working on a kind of a trap for the Force creature. And this was a nice nod towards continuity, because they have the Keeper's cage that he left behind with Smith in it, and they've rigged it up with some suitable, high-energy bait for the creature, namely, some
2: clearly labeled solar batteries hanging from the cage's roof. You say roof, but they never bothered to add a roof to this cage. Maybe they're worried that the claustrophobia runs strong in the family line and they don't want to risk freaking out uncle thaddeus <laughs> that's a good point smith is not only dubious he's downright offended at their efforts he keeps
0: telling them that they're wasting their time while don keeps telling smith that he sounds like a broken record repeating the same thing again and again smith says he'll keep saying it until they finally understand you cannot trap a spirit smith says they're wasting their time on this fool's errand It could have been better spent refining fuel for their departure, and Don acidly tells Smith to go ahead and start refining since he knows as much about that as he does about Drill Site 5. No response (laughs) from Smith to that.
2: It was a good comeback, Don. We need you as a moderator in our next CNN political debate. (laughs) Exactly. With the trap set, John tests
0: the cage by pushing a pipe across the entrance. The glass door drops closed, and they're satisfied this will capture the strange alien force. Smith isn't impressed. He insists that their amateurish efforts will come to naught. John asks if he has any better suggestions. Yes, placate the spirits. Tell them that you believe in them. Somehow, John just can't bring himself to go that far, and since he's in command here, they're going to do it his way. At your peril... Later that night, while everyone is sleeping, we see the cage waiting in the dark. Then, the batteries hanging from the ceiling begin to shake. The glass trap is sprung. Whatever it is has been trapped inside the shaking cage. The robot alerts our space pioneers and they rapidly come up from below to investigate. As they're gathered around the shaking trap, Smith again dressed in his nightshirt and cap is distressed.
2: Now you've done it. You've given the powers of Doctor's the excuse to destroy us all. <laughs>
0: And Don can't resist throwing it back in Smith's face. Why don't you admit that you started this all? And he says, "All right, I admit it, but
2: why could not you let sleeping dogs lie?" Oh, forgive me, Uncle Thaddeus.
0: We'll ask again if Smith is sure it's his Uncle Thaddeus. And I like this because none of us are sure what this force is. Even the totally science-based members of the crew are apparently having to reconsider everything.
1: Why couldn't you let sleeping dogs lie? Oh, forgive me, Uncle Thaddeus. Whatever's in there hasn't been getting much sleep the last couple of nights. Because you spoiled my attempt to placate him. Are you sure it's your Uncle Thaddeus in there, Dr. Smith? It's his poltergeist, the demon that possesses him when he's in a rage.
2: I'd sure like to get a good look at him. Maybe we could put a lot of rope around the cage and then open the door.
1: We'll wait till morning. He'll be lots quieter then.
2: Do you think he'll still be invisible in the morning?
1: I don't know. I would materialize him, but in his present state of agitation, I wouldn't dare. Once and for all, Smith, why don't you get it through your thick head that what's in there is not your Uncle Thaddeus. Yes, I know, Major. It's mass and energy and similar figments of your nuclear imagination. And if you choose to believe that, Humbug, you go right ahead and do it. Oh, the ignorance of science.
2: Oh, the ignorance of science.
0: Mm, Yes, the ignorance of science. That's a great (laughs) one of my favorite all time Dr. Smith lines from the entire series. Well, Smith storms back off into the ship, utterly convinced that he's right. And he's surrounded by misguided
2: fools. You know, it's one thing to watch these people argue about the monster on a 60-minute episode of Lost in Space where you know no one ever gets killed and Smith is always wrong and therefore he's going to be wrong this time too. But it's quite another thing to imagine if you were in a similar situation in real life. And we saw these supernatural things happen around us, and we only have two options of what to believe. Our know-it-all dad, who's convinced that science is the explanation but doesn't know what it is. Or Smith, who claims to have seen this spirit before and promises to know how to deal with it. At least Smith is offering some answers, so you can understand why some of the members of the crew would start to listen to him. After all, John is very stubborn, and contrary to his own self-image, he's not always right. He can't even be told how to operate his parajet thrusters by a trained pilot, or to wait to finish his spacewalk until after the burning comet has passed. So you can understand why they're starting to waver in their confidence about who to follow. Yeah. And, you know,
0: and Dr. Smith does seem like you said he does seem like he knows he's he's very authoritative and for once he's not frightened by all of this so that should have at least given them some pause you would have thought you know mhm later that night though We're inside Will's cabin, and the accordion door slowly and quietly opens. Standing outside is Dr. Smith, or should I say, Friar Smith, because now he's wearing yet another piece of wardrobe we haven't seen before. He's dressed in a monk's habit, carrying some interesting accessories. A lantern, a pitcher, a large book, and some
2: garlic. Yeah, this stuff has been stored with all the cigars and the space pod. (laughs) They're open only in an emergency surprise supply compartment. It's a great-looking costume,
0: though. (laughs) It really is, yeah. He quickly enters Will's cabin and then gently wakes the boy. Will says he thought for a second Smith was Uncle Thaddeus, but Smith explains that his dear uncle recognizes him easier when he's wearing familiar raiment.
1: (laughs) Now we know. (laughs) Now we know.
2: (laughs) <laughs> Smith got introduced to all these effeminate situations. <laughs> he was in a convent.
0: Oh, oh Lord. Boy. Smith gets to the point. He asks about the safe path through the bog and wants Will to lead him through it so he can placate an army of angry spirits massing to rescue one of their own who's now trapped in that cage. It's their last hope, he says. Will, skeptical. He's not a ghost, Dr. Smith. Shh, spirit. They don't like to be called ghosts. Mm. Dr. Smith begs Will to give him the benefit of the doubt, and Will says that Mom did tell him to keep an open mind, so he agrees to help Dr. Smith and lead him through the swamp. Next, as the act is nearing a close, we see a frightened Dr. Smith following Little Will through that murky, fog-bound swamp full of boulders, slime, and dead trees. With the wind whining in the background... Will and Smith duck and dodge the dead branches and obstacles along the narrow, dry path through the swamp. And the music is also very sinister as they go along
2: that dangerous path. This is another great homage to the old black-and-white Universal monster movies with all the fog Mm -hmm. and gnarly and twisty trees. It's Mm -hmm. great. I was
0: expecting the wolfman to come lunging
2: out from behind
0: smith has to stop for a rest hanging his coleman lantern on a branch while he and i think it was a coleman lantern, actually
2: oh the dangers i faced for that family and you know he's not actually exaggerating this time he's placed himself in great danger uh, over the Robinsons' family from the very start, he could have received the death sentence for murder and treason if he had been caught sabotaging that ship. <laughs>
0: exactly,
2: that was yes. He was very brave and facing all kinds of dangers, <laughs> all for the family, all
0: for that family. <laughs> then, before we go to commercial, we cut back to the campsite. The robot is standing guard outside that glass cage. The ghost or force creature is still invisible and starts to violently rock and pound against the walls of that trap. It manages to knock the cage over on its side, which shatters the glass and release the beast from the trap. Before the robot can stop it, he's drained of power, and we see more of those footsteps of that beast heading off into the
2: night for who knows what. Yeah, well even if the glass hadn't shattered, he could have just crawled out the empty opening at the top. <laughs> Kurt. <laughs> Don't spoil it. <laughs>
0: it's true, though.
1: Lost in Space has been brought to you by.
0: Support for this nonprofit podcast is made in part by.
2: Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com.
0: When we return from the break to start the final act, Will and Smith are still making their way through that foggy swamp. Dr. Smith is clearly frightened at the ghoulish surroundings, yet I have to give him credit, like you said, for being brave enough to go out there and try to fend off the spirits. But still, it's funny how he he keeps trying to reassure Will that there's nothing to be afraid of, even though Will doesn't seem to be bothered at all by all this. After all, he's not the superstitious one, so I guess that makes sense.
2: No, plus it's fun. I mean, why watch Scooby-Doo cartoons when you can actually... in an episode fair
0: point then smith gets tangled up in a tree and immediately goes into full panic mode
2: oh they're attacking me the polar guys they've <laughs> caught me
0: push it aside dr smith it's only a branch <laughs> are you sure i'm sure <laughs> We've gone from the Universal Monster movies to the old Abbott and Costello meets the Wolfman and Fra- or Frankenstein movies. You remember those two, Kurt? They had all the Universal Monsters, right?
2: But they had Abbott and okay. Costello. <laughs> right, you <laughs> know, it's, it's like... Uh- Hey, (laughs) Abbott! Horror and uh, humor often work pretty well together, though, when juxtaposed with one another.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I loved all those things. I think they're great, so this is working on me, I can tell you. Smith is relieved, and Will advises that they're in the middle of the bog, so it might be a good idea to start that placating. Smith agrees, and they take up a position on a flat-topped boulder. Smith climbs on top of the rock while Will holds the lantern high. Smith starts to speak his incantations pleading with the eternal spirits to hear his voice, hear his voice. He promises them that their brother spirit, who has been treated so outrageously, will be returned to them, unharmed. That's when there's a cutaway, and we get a glimpse of some kind of strange beast thumping its way through the heavy fog. We don't get a good look at it yet, but at least it's not invisible now. Hmm. We do get a look at those enormous three-toed Barney the Dinosaur feet with the large claw-like toenails. Wow. Now, a lot of questions are going off in my mind right now, Kurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Will asks if the spirits heard Dr. Smith, but he's waiting for a sign. As yet, there isn't anything solid, so he repeats his call to the universal spirits. Hearing nothing in response... Smith says, oh, we've gone too far, so despite Will's protest, they move to another location. And now they're on an even narrower path, walking on rocks over the slime. Then Dr. Smith hears a thumping sound in the dark. And now we see the legs of that creature stamping through the sand and getting closer and closer. And it is an interesting set of legs. They, they almost appeared to be covered in, like, scaly leaves or ribbons of fleshy material. It's definitely something alien. It had me really wondering what the rest of that creature looked like, Kurt.
2: Yeah, it kind of looked like the ancient wrappings of the mummy, you know? Mm-hmm. Although they could be strips of flesh or some sort of plant matter, as you mentioned. Yeah. Well, I was wondering, why is this
0: creature suddenly now visible? Or was it just being shown to us? and it would remain invisible to Will and Smith, I wasn't sure yet how this was going to play out.
2: Yeah, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense. And and you would think that the soft ground of the bog wouldn't produce such loud thumps for every step. But you know, Even though these are Barney the dinosaur-sized feet. But, but the approaching thuds do add tension, so why sweat the details?
0: Exactly, and it must be getting closer to him. That's when Will says, Yes, something's following us. which causes Dr. Smith to moan in despair. Oh. Uh, his courage seems to have abandoned him now, and Will asks, Is there anyone there? But he doesn't get an answer, so he suggests that Smith call to him. He'll do that as soon as they're out of this dreadful bog. Will asks, Why don't they just wait for the
2: spirit to, ca- <laughs> to catch up with him? Oh, no, no, no. We must maintain a respectful distance. It's an essential part of the uh, ceremony. <laughs> I love the wait. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) Oh, dear, no.
0: Oh, dear me. Uh, Clearly, he doesn't want to meet up with that spirit. Not yet, anyway. And it's funny because he's still trying to put on this air of someone who's in charge of the whole situation, even though he's clearly on the verge of panic. Will goes along with the program again, and they move a little further down the line. And next, Will stops. He sees something ahead in the fog. He thinks the spirits managed to get in front of them and points to it. What we can see, or at least I could, was a large dead tree directly ahead. And neither one of them seemed to recognize it for what it was. I mean, there was a lot of fog billowing around it. Was it obvious to you it was a tree? I think it was pretty obvious, right?
2: Well, it, it looked like one of those tree monsters from Lord of the Rings. So there was some scare factor. But, you know, I kind of suspect its uh, bark was worse than its bite. Well, anyway... The frightened Dr. Smith kneels down in front
0: of a rock with Will at his side. Will says Friar Smith better start talking to that spirit if he's going to let them by. But Smith says it may be full of dangerous, unpredictable poltergeists. So he decides it's time to pull out the big guns. He must exorcise them. Which brings a good laugh line from Will who asks why a spirit would need exercise?" No, no, my boy. Exorcise. It means cast out evil. Mm. Great one-liner. It is, yeah. Smith tries to cast out the demons by throwing a dagger at the spirit. But Will tells him he missed. Smith says, well, the poltergeist must have turned it aside. And next, he tries some cloves of garlic, which he tells Will to wave in front of the spirit and recite an incantation. Holding his nose, the boy repeats the chant Smith tells him about an herb of evil o- <laughs> An herb of evil omen. And Will's a good sport, but then he halts mid-sentence when he realizes... That thing isn't a spirit at all. And with Smith still cowering behind the rock, Will approaches it with the lantern and then just announces, It's just a moss-covered old dead tree.
2: Imposter!
0: He jumps up and joins Will, complaining about all that wasted effort. Then Will walks around the tree to go fetch the dagger that Smith lost earlier. Smith is frightened and calls after Will, but before he can do anything, little Will appears to trip... and fall head first into that bog. Ooh, that was quite a spill. Yeah. By the time Smith makes it around the tree to that same spot, there's no sign of the boy. He's calling after Will, but getting no response. Then to make matters worse, Smith loses his footing and stumbles to his knees. Looking down at the ground, now we can hear the heavy sounds of those thumping creature footsteps closer and closer. Smith is yet again frozen in terror as we see those three-toed clawed feet stomp into view just inches away from Dr. Smith's downturned face. He tries not to panic. Uh, where? Where? Is that you? I think we've heard this line before before. Yeah. He slowly raises his head to take a peek. When he sees that creature, he erupts in another classic Dr. Smith scream to beat all screams. But even better, we finally get a good look at old Uncle Thaddeus, and he hasn't aged well. But this is really a great monster, isn't it, Kurt?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. I liked it even better than the Cyclops, although technically this one is also a Cyclops. Right. We should call it the Seaweed Cyclops. In fact, isn't this the Cyclops that later appeared on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea as the giant underwater monster shaking the sea view?
0: It's one of several. I think you're right. I think it is one of several that does the same thing. Uh huh. It's a cool yeah. monster. It really is.
2: Yeah, I thought he, he would have been right at home on Outer Limits. He was that good. And I was surprised because according to Joel Eisner's Lost in Space Forever book, CBS warned Irwin that when the monster becomes visible, they did not want it to be excessively terrifying. So I don't know if he listened to it or not, but if that was the less frightening version of that monster, I sure would have loved to have seen the original concept. Wow.
0: Oh, yeah, because he was covered in those, like, seaweed or strips or whatever it was, and he had that cool single
2: eye. Yeah, like scaly face and scaly those face. dentures, the yeah. teeth that were, you know, they weren't fangs that actually made it seem creepier. They were just like, you know, snaggle teeth
0: Yeah, dentures. Yeah, it was a good one. It was a good one. They gave us some really good shots of it, too, but Smith is on his back. Absolutely frozen in sheer terror at the horror of this creature. He screams that this couldn't possibly be his Uncle Thaddeus, and somehow Smith manages to get up and run away from the creature, but then he's penned against a rock, throwing whatever he has at it as the beast lumbers toward him. At the last minute, as Smith is begging for mercy and asking the demon not to come any closer, it suddenly pops. Boop, 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 boop. Right out of sight. That's another weird move. I I couldn't quite get that. All is now quiet and calm, at least for the moment. Trying to pull himself together, Smith stumbles back where he last saw Will, but the boy's nowhere to be found. Then he discovers one of the boy's mud-covered boots, nothing else. Smith starts to melt down at the thought of the boy lost in the depths of that slimy swamp.
2: Oh, Will, he's gone. And what will I do now? How will I tell them? Oh, Will, oh dear, oh dear.
0: Yes, he's gone. Or is he? Because next we see some small footprints appearing in the soil. And we hear Will calling for Dr. Smith. And Will says suddenly, hey, I can't see myself. Hmm. This was one thing. I don't know if you noticed this. Again, I'm picking all the little nitpicky details there. But they were when they were showing his footprints, they literally had a footprint and a boot print because he's missing a shoe on one foot. So one print was a you know basically the outline of a foot. The other one was the outline of the boot.
2: I thought that was good. Yeah, the only thing uh, more fun than being nitpicky uh, in a sarcastic sense is when you catch these little nitpicky things that are actually pretty clever. So yeah, yeah. I like that a lot too. Yeah,
0: but I mean that was a lot of effort because honestly I'm sure I never noticed that the first time I watched it. But, you know, we're watching the show multiple times for the podcast, so you, you catch those things.
2: Well, I, I like watching it multiple times just because it's fun to watch multiple times. Oh, I yeah. mean, you know, I've got kids who like to watch it, too. But, you know, you start to notice these things and you go, wow, you know, I didn't see that before. It's true. The more you watch, the more you catch. So, Well,
0: Will's footprints are followed by the sight of the creature's visible feet stamping through the soil in the fog. So this is kind of a switcheroo now, and it was a little confusing to me. The creature's been invisible for most of the show. After escaping from the cage, for some reason, he's visible. After he menaced Dr. Smith, he suddenly popped out of sight, so he's invisible again. Okay. Then we see that Will, after falling into the bog and losing his shoe, is now invisible. And the next morning, we see that the creature is back and he's visible. So... Can you make any sense of this, Kurt? Or once again, am I asking too many questions?
2: Yeah, no, it's like there's only one cloak of invisibility in that swamp, and if Will's wearing it, then the monster has to go snatch it away from him or something. But pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Just go with the flow. Okay, I'm going with it. I'm going with it. In
0: any event, it's obvious that the Beast is following Will. At least that's the impression I'm getting. Maybe he's trying to get his power of invisibility back from Will. Hmm. Will keeps talking to himself and asking if Dr. Smith is following him. He can't see himself, but by the way he was talking, it made me wonder if he could see anything.
2: See, that's the problem that I have with that invisibility thing. It's dark and you can't see anything. I'm beginning to think that power is vastly overrated.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't look as fun here as it does in The Invisible Man.
2: <laughs> yeah, you never notice that with Fantastic Four. You know, when she's invisible, she seems to see everything, but oh well.
0: Yeah. Well, then next we cut back to the Jupiter 2. Judy can't sleep for some reason, and she's come upstairs. Looking out of the viewport, she sees the broken cage and the depowered robot outside. <laughs> She alerts the rest of the family and they race up to see what's happened. The men go outside to investigate the wrecked cage. Just then, Judy comes up and reports that Will and Smith are missing. And before they can digest that, Dr. Smith comes slowly wandering back into the camp, moaning, Oh dear. John asks if Will was with him.
2: He will always be with me.
0: Mm. Frustrated, John demands to know where his son is. Smith shamefully admits that he's in the bog. The bog. Maureen is horrified. John and Don go get their gear, assuring Maureen they'll find him somehow. Then Maureen confronts Smith. You left him out there. Oh, Dr. Smith, how could you? All he can say, though, is, oh, dear.
2: I thought it was kind of funny. I mean, because she's scolding him for letting her son drown in the bog. You know, bad Dr. Smith, bad boy, no treats for you tonight. You know, it just seemed like, <laughs> I thought she'd be hysterical and, you know. I know I would.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe she's trying to hope for the best, that he's he's just out there and not dead. (laughs) Well, uh,
2: it also kind of demonstrates that, you know, they all kind of view Dr. Smith as the man-child. He can't be held to adult standards, can he? No, uh
0: uh-uh. Back in the swamp, John and Don, armed with flashlights and laser rifles, are searching and calling for Will. They get no response, but then Don spots something across the way through the fog. We see that bog monster is visible again and acting strangely as if he's trying to capture something that he can't see.
2: Ah, the boot is now on the other foot. Now the invisible taunter has become the visible taunted. <laughs> mm. Touché!
0: Yeah. Well, the men are trying to find Will, as that creature is still groping for something that it can't see. Then we hear Will calling for help, and the beast appears for a second as if it might have managed to corral Will because we hear Will shout, No, don't! But then it pauses for a second. It looks up at the sky with the music coming to a crescendo. It brushes some of that seaweed from in front of its eye and stares into the rising sun for a couple of seconds as the tension is mounting. Right before John and Don arrive on the scene, it pops out of existence and will pops
2: back into view. Dan, that single Cyclops business. When the seaweed isn't getting in your eye, the sun is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Will smiles and picks himself up the ground as he realizes that he's visible again. And just at that moment, Dad and Don rush into the scene. Will's no worse for wear, and Dad asks what he's doing out here. Will says that he was with Dr. Smith trying to placate the spirits. He knows they won't believe this, but for a while, he turned invisible. John doesn't act too surprised, and he tells Will he believes him. Then Will starts to tell them about the creature, but just says, it couldn't have been Uncle Thaddeus. It's more or less left like that without any further explanation, which was a little frustrating to say the least.
2: Just go with the flow.
0: Okay, I got it. I'm going. Will says he better go tell Dr. Smith he's all right, and the men don't want to miss this. So, Next, in the final scene of this story, we see Dr. Smith sitting alone on a rock, talking to himself.
1: From now on, I shall devote the rest of my life to the service of my fellow man. With no thought of self, that brave little boy shall not have died in vain. A new Zachary Smith shall burst upon the world with a... Mm.
2: Yes, and remember how the universe was going to be transformed when Zachary had been poisoned by that earlier episode. (laughs) (laughs) He's so grandiose at his effect on the rest
0: of the world. He really is. At that moment. Will and the men walk up, and when Smith sets eyes on Will, he falls on his knees, screaming,
2: No, oh, no, no!
1: Oh, no, no, not so soon! You can't materialize until I've raised you, and I don't even have my witch aboard. But, Dr. Smith. Haunt me not, oh spirit! I have already repented, I swear to you! I'm not a spirit, Dr. Smith.
2: I'm just me. <laughs>
0: With Dad and Don looking on, Will tries to explain, but Dr. Smith is sure he's seeing Will's ghost. Will? Finally, the boy convinces Smith that he's not a spirit. Is it you? And Smith recovers and is overjoyed and relieved that the nightmare is over.
1: Oh, Will. Oh, Will, it's you. I found the lantern, but I lost a shoe looking for it. Lost your shoe? Exactly where to find it. Come along.
0: All's well that ends well. Oh, yes. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on Ghost in Space.
2: Well, it was a fun episode, and I enjoyed watching it, but, you know, this was one of those stories that was more style than substance. You know, there were a lot of loose ends, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, and, uh, you know, I kind of felt like they either didn't polish the script to the extent that they should have, they didn't go over and rewrite it enough, or that they did a lot of cutting out of scenes that would have helped explain this stuff. That was my impression. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I liked it, and I'm glad I saw it, uh, and I enjoyed watching it, but it's not one that particularly makes you want to see it again. You know?
0: I think that the high points are the, the dialogue that Peter Packer gave for Harris and Mark Goddard to play with. I, the creature is another obvious high point for me. Yeah, and
2: I, the seances, that was all great.
0: That was all really good. Um, But yet again, like you said, there were a lot of unexplained things. And and another obvious one is right at the end, like a lot of these creatures, they either disappear or crawl back into their sand pits and we never hear from them again, like the Cyclops or the Mutant or anything like that. I guess
2: we just have to expect that. Yeah, you just kind of felt like this could have been a really great episode, but didn't quite get to that level. You know, it had the makings, it had the. Right. It was filmed well, it had the great uh, scenes, it had the great props, it had the beautiful, wonderful atmosphere, but it just was lacking in the plot department.
0: Yep. Love the atmosphere, but uh, like you say, more style than substance. Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode, and we have the big three Dr. Smith, Will, and the robot are enjoying a lazy afternoon fishing at the pond. Smith is reminiscing about his youthful fishing days. Then suddenly the robot has a big fish on the line, but Dr. Smith takes the pole away from the robot and manages to let it get away. The other two pals give Smith a little ribbing for being the only one who hasn't been able to land a single fish. With his pride injured, Smith decides to go home without the others. Will and the robot follow suit shortly, but back on the way to camp... The robot starts to wave his arms, issuing a warning of immediate danger, and he's really kind of acting a little crazy. Will asks what kind of danger, but the robot's sensors will not accept the possibility of its existence. Will's flustered and starts to back up, looking all around for the source of danger. Right? Anytime they start backing up, you know it's a, <laughs> you know it's a setup for yeah. something. Then we see right behind him a familiar-looking mechanical man standing mute in the underbrush. But before we can find out what all this means, Kurt, the freeze frame warns us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Oh, this is Spids, This is Spids. I guess we'll have to wait until then to find out just what sort of danger this long-lost cousin of our robot presents for our castaways. And I know I'm going to enjoy
2: this one. Yes, I've heard uh, ahead of time that this is one of the better episodes, so looking forward to it. Yeah, it's got a lot of great stuff, so... And it's got a great title, too. Yes.
0: Folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 20th episode of Lost in Space, titled... War of the Robots. There's that great title, Kurt. Yep. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com, or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.